0: It's good to be with you all. Um, If it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I just want to welcome you to be a part of Redemption. Uh, You have joined us in the middle of a series that we've titled Building a Stronger Church, and uh, we are going six weeks looking at uh, six topics that we believe that God is using to shape us over the next 10, 15, to 20 years as a congregation, Uh, building upon the history that God himself has been building here, particularly in Tempe, of the eight years that we've been here. Now, also with the series, we've been a part of a capital campaign in which we are raising as one congregation a million dollars over three years and then we're going to start that by having a one-time cash offering giving on uh, March 3rd and so we've been excited about that um in fact just a few stories as I've I've talked to people on the heels of last week talking about generosity it's been really cool listening to some of the stories of some people saying this is a way that I can sacrifice I feel like I've never been able to live sacrificially with my money and uh, one of the illustrations that I use and I can't remember um what illustrations I use in what service, but um, I think it was the it is in this service, but I talked about how the fact that when I was 22 years old, going through a capital campaign, um, and I said I had nothing to give, and I was living below my means, and the guy was discipling me, looked at my closet and noticed that there was like 30-something pairs of shoes. He was like, are you sure? And so, um, sir, so there's been some people also convicted by that. I thought you were talking to me, Ricardo. I'm like, I wasn't, but maybe God was, right? So I have no idea. Um, and some families that are just saying, here's some things that we are doing. We're selling some things. We're uh, getting rid of some things. We're cutting down in our grocery bill to be able to say, this is what we want to be able to, to give towards this and uh, to be uh, just generous in that, in that sense. And so been really, really excited about that. And then for those of you, again, who were just joining in, uh, we talked the first week about how in response to the gospel we are to live out kingdom values and the city uh, to be servants, to bless them. Uh, the seek the shalom or the peace of the city. And then we follow that up by talking about discipleship and what does it mean to make disciples and to also be disciples. And then last week, generosity. And today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be an eclectic community. Now, the word eclectic means um, any per- eclectic person is someone who draws from different ideas and understandings to be able to develop their own thought. Now, we're not saying that the gospel in itself is eclectic. Um, the gospel is the central truth of the life, death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. However, that gospel does draw in, God draws, uses the gospel message to draw in all types of people of different races, different ethnicities, um, different cultures, different dialects, different expressions, just people that come together in how he forms his church. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm not even going to lie to you. Um, when it comes to, um, um, the six topics, um, I'm not going to say this is my most favorite topic, but it's definitely my favorite. And so I'm excited about that uh, this, this morning. Last week, money, least favorite. This one is my most favorite. So we're going to dig in. Uh, if you have your Bibles, meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of, of God's Word. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we give you so that you can continue to read God's Word together. Um, For those of you who are um, here for um, just a quick announcement for um, the biblical finance class that has been canceled because Jason Raber was teaching that uh, is sick. And so that's going to be 1045 next Sunday. Um, So if you didn't get a chance because you forgot to sign up, fortunately for you, you can also sign up for that online and then be a part of that class. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 11. Essentially, we're going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 and how the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to the church as an Ephesus, how he begins to unpack what an eclectic or diverse community looks like. And starting in verse 11, here's what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at "...that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Um, several years ago, probably 2006, I had the opportunity to be an intern at the Gilbert campus. It was my first experience in ministry. Um, there was a man from Colorado who came in who was speaking at the church and also speaking, um, actually, with our, our governor at that time about the issue of adoption and foster care. And his name was Robert Gelinas. Um, I got an opportunity as an intern to drive him wherever he needed to be, get him food wherever he needed to get food. And we just kind of hung around in the car, and he would just just, just ooze wisdom on me. Um, and this guy was amazing. He was a biracial man in his 40s. He had a church, uh, Colorado Community Church in Denver, and just really enjoyed him. And he said this when I was taking him to the airport. He goes, Hey, I want you to read this book. It's by Carl Ellison. It's called Free at Last with a question mark. And the subtitle is The Gospel and the African American Experience. He goes, I read it every Black History Month. And if I send you a copy, do you promise to read it every year for Black History Month? And I said, Yeah, I mean, why not? And so he sent it to me. And I've read it d- during the month of February for the past six or seven years. Um, Part of the things that the gospel that the book talks about is that it's not just the gospel in the African American culture, but he uses that culture um, in order to say how the what the gospel does in any culture and how the good news of Jesus Christ begins to draw in many people, but you have to start with first who you are. And so that same guy, Robert, who I met with, we got a chance to visit his church in Colorado. And he had this unique church, probably one of the most unique churches I've ever been to when it comes to just looking at a collective community. I mean, you had young people, you had old people, you had black people, you had white people, you had older white guys with Hawaiian shirts. And I was like, wow, they still do that. And then you had black women with hats. And I'm just going like, this makes no sense to me. And Robert gets up and he preaches. And it was crazy. But he said this. He says, you know, guys, I'm African-American, but I feel like I live somewhere on the hyphen. And I've taken that and realized, gosh, I resonate with that. I mean, African American, I live somewhere in the hype, and some of you guys are gonna get that about two o'clock today. It's gonna it's oh, right? Um, there there's a sense where I understand my African American culture, I understand my roots, I understand my tradition. I was born in the South, I was taught about the injustices towards African Americans um, in our country. I I I get it, I get how we got here, I, I understand that. And yet when God raised me, he raised me moving from Los Angeles to the suburbs of Southern California where I was around just so many different types of people. Uh, The family that babysitted us um, was a Filipino family that we were raised in. And we would go to vacation Bible school with them, with their predominantly Filipino church. And we would do VBS with them. And we would hang out with their kids. And all of my friends were from different races. And so I found myself living on that tension where I love, I love my culture. But I also love all these other cultures. And I think about it all the time. There's not a day that doesn't go by that I'm not thinking about race, that I'm not thinking about social, economical classes, that I'm not thinking about just differences. And, guys, this goes far more than race. Meaning, when I drive around the city of Tempe, right, if you just drive around or ride your bike around Tempe, you notice some things. If you go to the the Arizona Mills, you're going to see a type of people that are at the Arizona Mills just shopping and walking around that you may or may not see at the Tempe Marketplace. And if you leave the Tempe Marketplace and you're driving southbound on McClintock at Monday through Friday at around 2.30, all of a sudden McClintock High School gets out. And you see the kids who um, presumably live in the neighborhood around here and they're white and they're black and the Latino one, and they're, they're kind of going in their separate ways whether they're going home or to the bus stop there or to Starbucks or to McDonald's across the street. Even if you look at McDonald's, right? When I take my kids to the McDonald's in Southern McClintock, it's a different experience than on Southern, or McClintock and Elliott, just three miles south, same city. So when we go on Southern McClintock here, just down the street, my kids are minority being biracial, but not because the majority is white, because the majority is Latino, it's, it's Asian, it's Pacific Islanders. I mean, you, you see there's a difference there. So me and Holly sit there and go, oh this is interesting. Three miles south of there, if we go to McDonald's, there are minorities because it's, it's, um, the majority is Caucasian. It's just different. And that's not even to mention the university and surrounding the university of young people, people from other parts of the world, literally. Um, thousands of students from other parts of the world and thousands from other parts, uh, um, states and cities around our country that come here. There's hipsters, there's professionals, there's old, there's young, there's Democrats, there's Republicans, right? we got a really, really interesting city where God has us. But The question on the table is, how do you bring these people together? I mean, it's one thing for us to go, wow, we live in a diverse city. Wow, we live in an eclectic city. My neighbors look like this. People live across the hall. How do you bring them together? I don't know if you um, have ever seen the iconic Time Magazine uh, picture, 1945 on the cover. There's, There's the picture of a soldier who's dipping the nurse, which I'm assuming is his girlfriend or his wife. If not, it's awkward, right? And he's kissing her. And behind there, there's civilians that are hugging civilians and embracing each other, and there's soldiers embracing other soldiers, and sometimes soldiers embracing other civilians, and you just, you see this celebration. And you say, what is it that brings them together? Well, if you know the history, right, 1945, it was the end of World War II. It was good news that we had won. It was the good news that the war was over and that there's been victory. It was VE Day that people were able to come and say, I don't care who you are. There is something that has happened that has brought us together that we're able to embrace one another. Um, that is where we pick up in our message this week in looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Looking at Ephesians chapter 2, primarily verses 11 through 22, Paul begins to talk about how good news, the vertical understanding of God coming down and reconciling people to himself, um, vertical relationship with God begins to affect our horizontal relationship with one another. And in fact, let's start with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. The first word we see is therefore, and I say this every time we get into the text and we see therefore, you have to pause. One, because I want to teach you how to read your Bibles, is that when you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore Therefore, And everyone giggles (laughs) every time. Well, the writer is trying to connect something that he just previously said to something he's about to say. And so before we can get to the horizontal understanding of how God reconciles people to himself and to each other, we have to understand what he did first. What did Paul say? Well, he starts with the gospel, he starts with good news. Good news draws people together. And here's this good news, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And when you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. That means every single person in this room, by nature and by choice, that we are naturally separated from God. That is the condition that we were in, and if God doesn't do something, we are hosed, right? Like that, that the good news always starts with the bad news, and that we are separated from God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of a great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a free gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That was the vertical good news. Like, that is the gospel. We were separated from God, but God being rich in mercy. When did he do it? I love it. It says, while you were still sinning, while you were still dead. Paul did not say, God began to work in your life when you start showing up to a church service. God began to work in your life when you start um, praying a prayer or when you start cleaning yourself up, when you tried to get right with God. He goes, no, while you were still dead in your trespasses, Christ made you alive. By grace, you have been saved. This is good news. This is the vertical relationship of which a holy God begins to redeem a people for himself. Um, It means that the gospel says that when God enters into your life, he accepts you as is. Um, He redeems you as is. He embraces you as is. He loves you and lavishes his love upon you as is. That's what the gospel does. But the gospel never leaves you as is. Never does the gospel of Jesus Christ take you as is and leave you there. Meaning there is something that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in response to the good news of Jesus Christ, begins to work out the implications of the gospel in your life, morally, socially, spiritually, and so forth. And that's where Paul begins to pick up. He says, in response to the vertical relationship, now he gets to the horizontal, and it's written in that order for a reason. Meaning, before we ever talk about an eclectic community, before we talk about anything, we at the first start... With the main thing, and that is in Christ and his grace and his good news alone. And so in the same way, we can see um, these men and women embracing each other because of good news. Because of the good news of Jesus, Paul says, some things that are happening in this particular church that we're reading about needs to change. And then he starts in verse 11. Therefore, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Here's the context that's going on here. Um, Paul understands the vertical and he understands the horizontal. He understands that in God's purposes that God himself wants to have an eclectic community. It's something that God wants. But here's here's the deal. Paul gets this. And, and, And Paul gets it on levels that many of us don't get it on. Paul gets it on a level that the church in Ephesus didn't get it on, and many Christians today. See, when Paul becomes a Christian, we read about it in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Um, when you continue in Acts, Paul's minister training happens in a church in Antioch. And what you see in Antioch that's unique is it says in Antioch, um, after the persecution of a man named Stephen who was murdered for being a Christian, Christians began to scatter outside of Jerusalem, and they ended up in Antioch. And you had Christians who were Jewish people, people who were non-Jewish people. Um, you had a multi-cultural, uh, eclectic community. And now when they got together, um, Barnab- a man named Barnabas said, oh my goodness, the, God of- the grace of God is coming to bear on their lives. We're going to form a church. Now, it was in the church of Antioch, get this, is where they were first called Christians. This is the church, the first multicultural church, right? The first eclectic community that it was far more about, uh, far less to do with race, but different people groups that centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the non-believers, like those who did not believe in God, they begin to look at this particular community and go, you know, all the other communities in our city, All the other congregations, whether it be philosophy um, or it be a polytheistic culture, religious and non-religion, nothing looks like this. This happens to be a wide range of group of people who get together and eat meals together and they celebrate the life of this man named Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're going to call them Christians because that, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to look at Christ in his vertical relationship and in response to that, be able to love all different types of people and worship together. And they said, ah, we'll call them Christians. Well, that was Paul's experience. And then when he set out on missionary journeys, as you continue to read the book of Acts, Um, Paul himself planted um, eclectic communities. So it was very common for Paul to go into a city like he did in Athens, and he'd go to the synagogues, Acts, Acts chapter 17, and he'd begin to reason with the Jews, it says. So go with the Jewish people and then try to talk with them from Scripture, from the Old Testament, to point how Jesus is the Messiah. And some Christian people would become Christian. And then he'd go into the marketplace, and he'd walk around the marketplace. You read about it in Acts chapter 17. And usually they were um, very polytheistic, mini-gods. Um, they worshiped whatever they wanted to worship. And Paul's walking around, and he sees all these different gods, and he comes to one god that says, to the unknown god. He goes, that's where I'm going to start. He goes, men, women, man, I can tell. You are really religious. And you have all these gods, but listen, you have this unknown god here. Let me tell you about him. And he begins to unpack the gospel for him. And he says, here's what God has done. God in his sovereignty has placed people in particular places for particular times that they may know God. Um, We believe that God himself has placed us here as a church, the people around us, um, for a particular reason. First and foremost, that they too may know God. Paul was just being a minister of the gospel there. And people began to become Christians. He did the same thing in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where this church, that we're, the letter we're reading to where it began, where he went to the synagogues and Jewish people became Christians. And he went to the marketplace and people who were not Jewish people became Christians. They were Gentiles. Gentiles is just anyone who's not Jewish. And what Paul did not do in Ephesus, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to start a church for these people on the south side. And I'm going to start a church for these people on the north side. Because even though they understand their their common identity in Jesus, it wouldn't be good for them to be together. But what he does is he starts one church um, centered around the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And he says, this is what it means to resemble God. Well, what we pick up now is that there is tension that's happening is that the Jewish people don't really get on with the Gentile people, and the Gentile people don't really get on with the Jewish people in in service together. The Jewish people, they had an advantage, they thought, because they had known God all along where the Gentiles didn't. So they were okay with being Christian. They were okay with understanding the vertical relationship of Jesus, but they didn't want it to filter into all areas of their life. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not what God wants for his church. And so you've got to understand the Jewish culture, right? It's, they're, they're separated um, for, excuse me, the Gentiles are separated from the Jewish people. Like, they, they, if we, they, the Jewish people have to think, if we start letting all types of people in our service, man, our worship's going to have to change. This, you know, the style, the music's going to change. The, the sermons are going to get longer, and the services are going to get longer. I mean, we, we just can't have this, right? And, and that's the truth. When you when you go into a culture of a church, right, that's different than the one you grew up in, it's hard um, the first church I ever stepped into, um, once I became a Christian, was a predominantly white church. And I've shared this before. It blew my mind. Like, it blew my mind. I was used to just, in my particular church growing up, we had a choir, um, we had drums, and we had a piano. We didn't have guitars and, and, and all of that. And hear me. Um, That doesn't mean that every black church didn't have my church in L.A. That was a fake Baptist church. We didn't we didn't have it. And I say fake because we tried to get into the Baptist, but we just never could get in. They wouldn't like couldn't get in. And that was just my environment. So when I showed up to this particular church that I was going to and they had the drum kit jacked up in the air and there was like thousand people on the stage playing and um, they had lasers and lights and I'm dodging the lasers and stuff. Right. And I'm trying to get in. And I really felt like, man, this is a club. But Jesus is here. Right. like like. Jesus is in the club, right? This is, this is, this is different. And I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. But when the guy came up and he started teaching, I was like, man, I like that. I've never really heard the Bible like that. I never really heard it teach like that. And, and, and you know, it, it was different. Um, and that's what happens when you bring different people together. There are just some things that you just won't agree on. Um, and, and Paul understands that. But he begins to go to the main thing that keeps them together and the main thing that should keep all people together um, and understanding the good news of Jesus Christ um, and talking about Jesus in response to this good news. You see, if there was any culture that should have known this was God's plan, it should have been the Jewish people. The Jewish people understood God. God has always been for this. This was not something that Paul said, you know what, I think because of my experience in um, in Antioch church, no, 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 he understood the Bible. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man named Abraham in which he's going to plan his long plan of redemption and redeem the world. And he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. All the nations, meaning all people groups through you, like through your family, through you, ultimately, I'm going to bless all the nations. But the Jews didn't get that. They thought it was about race when it had always been about God's grace, always. And and that was good news. And you say, well, how was Genesis 12 good news? Well, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 7 and 8 that the gospel, good news, was preached through Abraham and then he quoted Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, meaning inherent in the gospel, the life, death, and a resurrection of Christ Jesus was that God himself would collect a people of different backgrounds and of different preferences, of different choices. So hear me clearly. The gospel is not diversity. The gospel is not an eclectic community. The gospel is namely the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus on our behalf that we may know him. And when we come to grips with that vertical understanding of the gospel, it begins to shape us. God himself, through Christ, begins to do something in and through us. And Paul is trying to apply that to the church here in Ephesus and also us here 2,000 years later. And so he continues. He says this, verse 14 or verse 13, but now, he's saying, you were separated, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, far off, have been brought near by the blood of the Christ, blood of the cross, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. It's, a, it's something we sing about. There's something very precious about the blood of Christ. We say nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What for can sin atone? Right. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow of the blood of Jesus. We sing these songs because there is something inherently beautiful and redemptive about the precious blood of Christ. That not only does the blood of Jesus washes us of our sins, past, present, and future, that by faith in Christ Jesus, we have been made new, that we are are redeemed, that we are made righteous. But what Paul is saying is, um, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far, far off have been brought near. That means brought near to God and now brought near to each other By the blood of Jesus. Um, Understanding God's blood, understanding Christ's sacrificial death and atonement is important for us as Christians, for those of us in this room who would say that we are Christians. It's important for those of you in the room who are not Christians to understand the core tenets of our faith. Um, The blood of Christ reconciles us with God, but it is also through the power of the blood of Christ that we begin to be reconciled with one another. Uh, Years ago, and I've shared this story with you, it was my first um, personal collision with racism um, in my, my own personal life. And I was, I was eight years old. And just to context, I moved from Mississippi to LA. I'd never met a white person until we moved to the suburbs. And I was uh, eight years old at a school where playing basketball, me and this guy. And I knew, um, I knew the tension um, between whites and blacks in our history, um, in our country. Because my mom, I thought, did a great job. Great job in teaching us, watching documentaries and movies about it. I mean, it was just, I I thought it was great. And so we, I knew there was one particular word that can set any African-American male off more than anything. And it's the N-word. And it was a word that we were never allowed to say. Not even, you know, like the way rappers say it. We were just not not able to say it. And we just never did. But for whatever reason, that word will bring up so much emotional, like, hatred, anger. Even if, if, you know, you didn't experience it like the the African-Americans did in the South. And so we're playing basketball, me and this guy, and we're playing one on one, and I'm beating him clearly, and um, not because I'm black. Come on, don't go there. <laughs> Today, really? So, so we're, I, we we get done playing, and we're arguing like eight year olds, going back and forth. Well, then he drops the N word, and like. Like something came over me. I don't. I've never felt this experience ever again, actually. And I start um, going after him and laying hands on him in very unbiblical ways, right? And we're going, we're going after it, and we get pulled, you know, pulled off by the proctors and brought in the principal's office, and the principal's, you know, saying, "I'm going to call your mom now." And I was thinking, uh-oh, because <laughs> I wasn't really afraid of what the principal was going to do. I, I just knew what Brenda was going to do, and that was going <laughs> to be hard for me. And so my mom showed up, and the principal was uh, talking and, and says, hey, you know, Ricardo said that, you know, uh, this kid said this word. And, and she looked at my mom, and she goes, I just know he would never say that because I know his parents. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I'm thinking now my mom's on my side now, right? The the principals are racist, and my mom's going to be like, yeah, she's with me. No, 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 no. Um, We got home, and my mom disciplined me um, for getting in a fight, and then she set me on the bed, and I think taught me one of the the most valuable stories that I will teach my kids for sure. And and she said, listen, um, it doesn't matter. Like God cares about black people the same way he cares about white people. He cares about Stephen's family the same way he cares about Venus family, which was the Filipino family we knew. And he he cares about all of them. And here's what we know, she said, is the blood of Jesus is the same color as all those people. And Jesus Christ, his spilt blood, his shed blood, was meant that all of those different people may be able to come together under his authority and to know him and to love him. Gosh. Like that. That was, that was valuable for me. Now, I'd love to tell you at eight years old, I got it. It was like, oh, yeah, now I get it. It's kind of like in Genesis 12 when Abraham was told by, you know, no, I, just, I, I, I didn't get it. But the older I got, it made sense, right? My mom grew up in the South. My mom did segregation. My mom was spit on. And for a woman like this to be able to sit down with me, understanding that she knew this little boy had said that. And this woman, and she understood that. But what mattered most in that was to teach me an understanding of God's and Jesus's blood—it's the reason why we come to the communion table every single week. That—that that if we ever want to be a church, if we want to be God's people, not just even an eclectic people. If we ever want to be generous, if we want to be servants, everything starts and continues and finishes with the blood of Christ, the good news that God himself showed up and he put on flesh for this reason, that he would be broken for us. That we may, be, we may enter into his name and under his authority and under his reign. And that that's hipster, that's professional, that's Democrat, that's Republican, that's white, that's black, that's Asian, that's Latino, together under the name and reign of Christ Jesus. And so when Paul begins to talk about this, this is not just some personal preference this is something we see god is for and 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 if that wasn't enough paul continues to drive the gospel in in this particular topic of being an eclectic community he continues he says for he himself it says he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility now here's what's happening that the blood of christ the gospel of jesus christ this community this eclectic community is it it's different because the gospel produces in us a different type of peace you know there's peace that we see on tv with presidents and leaders from other countries they they shake hands and they make peace um you see people afterwards a sporting events they shake hands and they make peace that that, that doesn't happen right we, we can't have another march or another parade and say, oh, we're, we're, we all get along, right? We can't make another song. No, that hasn't worked on the surface it has. Here's the fundamental problem. There's something fundamentally wrong with me, and there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And so they, though we may try to make peace, we need something and someone who is inherently perfect and right. And Paul says, that's what Jesus does. That our peace is not a superficial peace. It's not a peace that's just, just good for an event, but it's a peace that's a cosmic, a cosmic peace that God himself enters in our problem. And, and Paul says, Jesus becomes our peace. This is the new type of peace. The community that, that Jesus is forming has a new type of peace because it centers around Jesus. Therefore, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be possible. And here's why he says that he, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and I love that picture of broken down in his flesh. I and mean, if you ever wanted to care if God cares about this, like if God, does God really care about bringing different types of people together, right? Is that, is that just like a Ricardo thing or is that a God thing? Um, God cared about it to the point where he said that in his flesh, he, was, like he, got, he got real personal with it. Like in his flesh, he's saying, I'm, I'm allowing my body to be broken, that I would redeem a people for myself And then that those people would be in community and be one with one another. That in his flesh, he says, like, yeah, I'm serious about this. Like, Jesus put on flesh in order for his flesh to be broken for us. And not just so that we may know him in a vertical sense, but in response to that, that we may know one another by knowing him and through knowing him. And it says that he himself, he breaks down this wall of hostility. Now, I think Paul is, is alluding to something in this understanding of breaking down the wall of hostility. Um, because he's talking about, I believe, the temple, and within the temple where the Jewish people worship, there, were, there was a side there for Gentiles that they can come into, and then there was a wall, and over the side of that wall there were women, there was a section for women, then a section for Jewish men, and then a section for priests. Now, you see the separation there. Um, Jew, Gentile people from everybody else. Well, in 1871, what they found through the ruins of these, these temples is that they found this wall, an, an inscription of it, the side that separated the Gentiles from the rest of the Jewish people, that there was an inscription on the wall that said, essentially, do not cross this wall of fear of death. I Meaning, you can be around us, we can live next to each other, we can sit, like, close to each other, but there's a separation, and what Paul is saying is that separation no longer exists. That separation no longer exists, that the barrier has been broken. That people are able to be one with one another, not just in a superficial sense, but in a very supernatural, spiritual sense in the work and through the work and because of the work of Christ Jesus. Um, Meaning that white and black can worship together, not just in the same room, but literally eat together. That Jesus becomes our peace. This is what Jesus even did when he was here on this earth, right? You ever read the gospels and you notice what Jesus is doing like, Jesus is, Jesus is always trying to wreck somebody's, uh, somebody's community. He's always saying, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, he hangs out with the overly religious people, and I, and I use religious in a pejorative sense. And then he hangs out with the irreligious people, and he's usually like, hey, hey, we're going to hang out tonight. Hey, we're going to hang out tonight. And then meet at somebody's house, and Jesus is like, bam, right? How'd you guys like that, right? Prostitute, <laughs> right? Together, right? He's just always breaking it down. And it centers around, when, he, when Jesus teaches, he centers around what he's doing in the gospel and how he's collecting people together from different backgrounds. So hear me clearly. I, I believe that um, this text is primarily talking about Jews and Gentiles, but its broader implication goes further than that. Because we've got to understand that just because the wall metaphorically is broken down, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we could just go to people and be like, hey, hey, I don't even see color. Let's, let's just hang out, right? No, no, no. In fact, side note. When you say that you're colorblind and you don't see color to people, usually people of color, that's usually offensive because what you're saying is, I don't see you the way that God has made you. So the heart behind it, I think, is very good. Hey, you're equal with me and I'm equal with you. Uh, A helpful thing is, I see you. That's it, right? Doesn't doesn't need to be that. Um, The walls being broken down means that only in the gospel now, in the same way, through the cross, that it's painful, it's hard, you have to give up certain things in order to be able to be in community with one another. The natural tendency, even though the wall is down, is for us to be with people like us. To be with people who vote like us, people who eat the types of food as us, people who listen to the same type of music as us. We, we could talk about the music and the food and all of that at one community together. Um, that's, that's, that's the natural tendency. And I'm not trying to make an argument either that every church needs to be super, Collective, diverse. No, no, no. Um, because we got to understand our history. Um, there's a thing as subdominant culture. There's, there's dominant culture and subdominant culture. Um, dominant culture is the dominant culture. And if you say, I don't know what you're talking about, chances are it's because you're in the dominant culture. Um, and it's not just a race thing because there are minorities. There are a part of the dominant culture. It's usually money, it's influence, education, and so forth. But then there's the subculture. And here's what happens, why I think there should be all black churches and there should be all Korean churches and so forth, is that when you talk to many people, they will say, listen, I go to work in the dominant culture. I go to school in the dominant culture. I pick up my kids from school in the dominant culture. The sports team that my kids put up, it's the dominant culture. I'm looking for one place just to metaphorically let my hair down. And so, so, so speaking more explicitly of the African-American culture, that's always been the church. That's always, even from the time of slavery, the one place where they did not have to have a slave owner in, where they could just expressively be themselves in Christ, was church. And so I'm not saying that's going to be every church that's going to look like that. But I do believe some churches could, and some churches should. I do believe our church should, as we look at the scripture here. And we see that that hostility is broken. And so there's a new type of peace, but it has to begin with and continue with in Christ Jesus. Amen? The, the second thing about this community um, in response to the gospel of Jesus's blood that, Pete, that Paul talks about here is that it's a new community, meaning it's never been done before. Verse 15, it says, By abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. In verse 15, when it says new, one new man, um, there's two words in the New Testament the Greek words that New Testament writers will use One word is the Greek word Nuos Which means new as it relates to time and kind um, So if you have an iPhone 4 And then you get an iPhone 5 It's a new iPhone It's better because it's newer But it's not completely different It's, not, it's been done before It's just a better version And what I love about that is Paul doesn't use that word Paul doesn't say that Christ came to make people better. He didn't say Christ came and he, in his body he broke down the dividing walls of hostility, um, that he crushed racism and prejudice. He he crushed those things to bring cultures and different people and different people groups together so that they could be a little bit better. He doesn't say that. The the word that he uses is kanos, which means new of its kind, meaning never done before, like first ever. Meaning what God was doing in the church is he was not by any means getting rid of your racial identity, but he was redeeming your racial identity. He was not getting ri- rid of your cultural preferences, but he's redeeming your cultural pre- preferences. He's not getting rid of your political ideologies, but he's redeeming your political ideologies. Because the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is that God takes the gospel of Jesus to the totality of your being. And when any culture, no matter what the culture is, the gospel affirms some things about that culture. Meaning, there's some things that are consistent And then there's some things it critiques And and hear me now When it says new people Sometimes you'll hear writers and, And men who I respect that says So there's one new race It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Latino No, 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 no God created us that way So it does matter For whatever reason God allowed this to happen And when we see at the very end of the story In the new heavens and the new earth We read Revelation 5 And it says every nation and every tribe will be there It doesn't say one nation They all somehow got together And they became one race No Therefore, I think God cares about it. I just think he's redeeming it. And every culture is different. Every race is different. Like one person can't represent their race. People ask me questions, hey, Ricardo, um, which I know what's coming usually when it comes like, hey, Ricardo, um, what's it like being black in a predominantly white church? What do you think black people think about? I said, listen, I cannot speak upon the millions of black people in our country. I can tell you what Ricardo thinks, right? I can't take that pressure because the black experience is not monolithic. The white experience is not monolithic. I know my wife, and I know my wife's family, but they're different than Tim Anderson and his family. I was joking around with Tim earlier. It's like, I know Holly. If I said, oh, this is what white people are like, Holly never knew who Martin was, which kind of was a shame. Not Martin Luther King, he's important, Martin Lawrence. And, and Tim loves Martin. He was like, dang, Gina, right? There was like this, this, this sense and They're different. They're different so you can't just say lump everybody into one, but at the same time you can't get rid of them I think what he's saying when we're one new race is saying the church coming together does experience something completely different That it can't do apart The church in unity, right? Like literally people more than race just cultural differences have old and young people coming together There's something that we experience of the nature of god that is different than when we are separate. So, so when we see in response to the vertical relationship that Paul himself is saying Jesus did something, he gave his life for this, not only to redeem him you to himself, but also to reconcile you together, that there could be community. Like, it's going to be hard because it's born out of the cross, and so we know it's going to be difficult. There's going to be conversations. There needs to be a lot of questions and a lot of confession, but this is possible. But what does that like, look like for us going forward, right? If we're saying this is a vision series, right? This is not going to happen overnight. What does this look like? the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, first, we have to understand that this particular type of grace, um, excuse me, if we're going to start somewhere or continue somewhere, I would say, we got to keep the main thing the main thing. I've read almost every book there is on multicultural diversity, church, and, and the reason why we use the word eclectic over diversity, just to let you know, is eclectic in itself to me speaks far more than just race. So often it's just, it, it's only on race. Now, Race and ethnicity has a big part of it. But I know me as an African-American male and friends of mine that are African-American male, we are so different that we can't just say just get black people because we're different. And the same thing with Caucasians, right? Anglo, sorry. Um, to, get to, to, get, to get that right. So these books will say you got to hire the right people. And it's like, you know what? We can get to the pragmatics of things. And we'll spend the next 20 years talking about pragmatics. Where we need to start to be an eclectic community or where we need to grow is keep the main thing the main thing. First, preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we don't start there and continue there, it's me- hear me. it is me. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. If, if we don't talk about the security that we have in Christ Jesus, it's meaningless. Because there are people who can get people together. There are places you go into and you go, wow, this is really diverse. Jesus is not there. And, and some, in some cases, what you have is you have all grace and no truth. So you have just bodies of people together and they're celebrating. It's like, you, you we're all together. This is great. Let's sing a song and have a beer. And it's like, whatever you want to do, you can do. It's diverse. But there's no truth. Um, the, the, to me, one of the most diverse places to go, and they can do it without having Christ anywhere, is Walmart, right? If you ever go to Walmart, you're like, where are you guys from, right? <laughs> All you gotta do is walk into any Walmart and any city, and it's like that. For whatever reason, they've been able to draw that. If we don't start with, continue with, and preach in Jesus, we may not have the gospel. And if the gospel is not forming us, everything that I said is pointless. And here's another reason why you preach Jesus. With Jesus comes a sense of security of who you are that gives you the ability to branch out. So I've wrestled with this for years, and insecurities that have come of me. It was like, man, I got to, became a Christian, and I was in a white church. and No, man, well, i got to go to the black church because, you know, I'm, I'm black. And, then, and I was like, well, if I go to all black church, I'm going to go, oh, I'm in all black church, but I want to be around. I mean, it's just—and there's insecurities that come out of that. And, and I've talked to several of our minorities in our congregation that have that same wrestle where they just feel like they live in a tension— and what I try to tell them is, you have to know who you are in Christ because you're going to be pulled by culture, by family, by other ideologies that you have to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I found this by my own experience and others. If you preach the gospel, people are willing to go, you know what, the music may not be where, where I'm at. But I've learned now that I know the gospel that the lyrics, man, they, they, the man, they shape me. They shape me. They form me. And all of us, All of us. We give up something to be in community together. And all we do is look to Christ and go, he gave up the comforts of heaven to be with us. And so what we're doing in response to him is we're giving up our own personal choices um, in order to be in community with others. So we preach Jesus. The second thing is we got to understand God's purposes. If you jump down to chapter 3 here, verses 7 and 8, Paul's talking about preaching Jesus. And he talks about the purpose of what God is doing in the church. And on verse 9, he says, And to bring, the, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what Paul is saying. You preach Jesus, and understand Jesus by the gospel forms the church. And he says, this particular church, in response to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the gospel vertically, um, now horizontally, 11 through 22, forms the people together. And Paul says, continue to preach Jesus. And when you continue to preach Jesus, you have a church. And he says, the church is the manifold wisdom. Now, what manifold means, means multifaceted meaning god has a way to express his wisdom he could have just just for some reason just spoke all audible but what he did he says this is how he's going to make his name known to the rulers and the authorities which means the spiritual realm meaning angels they're they're obsessed with what is god doing and he says it's going to be through the church like, like, literally, God himself is going to put his glory and his wisdom to be expressed through people of God submitting to Christ and coming together and living out their unique, eclectic identities in Christ Jesus for centuries. And the angels are going to look and see the manifold wisdom of God. Like, that, that to me is amazing, like jars of clay or literally like broken down styrofoam cups. That's where we are. And God says, I'm going to give my glory to you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And when you collectively worship under the name and fame of Christ Jesus, the angelic realms will know, and not just them, the people around us. I think one of the clear witnesses of the gospel is when people who are not alike begin to be with one another. That the culture around us goes, you know what? I've never seen these type of people get together. Well, all we see is our cultures are extremes, right? You have like the bleeding liberal or the racist conservative, right? It's like you're one or the other. And when you see people under those tags worship together and people go, how could you guys get along and let you vote differently? Oh, yeah. We love Jesus. How could these races get along here? We love Jesus. How? I've never seen a hipster talk, let alone be with someone who's a, who's a I don't know, a businessman. How do you guys get together? And the hipster's just sitting there going, we love Jesus, bro. Why, why are you tripping, right? Another pour over. And we just make it happen. There's a, there's a legitimate sense of saying, I'm going to learn from the other and in hopes and grace that the other would learn from me that together, collectively, that we were able to showcase the name and fame of what God is doing through the church for the world. Preach Jesus, understand God's purposes, and the last thing we'll close with and what we should be doing and is pray. It's, it's simple. Preach Jesus, understanding what Jesus is doing and can do in and through us as we worship together. And not just in this room, but in all of life. And pray. Paul closes chapter 2 and chapter 3 almost with a, whew, I hope you get it, guys. And here's his prayer in verse 14, chapter 3, 14. For this reason, the reason of the church, an eclectic community, in response to the gospel, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family or every nation in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. I want you to know this. All the saints, when Paul says that, he's speaking intergenerationally. Saints that have gone before, um, saints that are Christian, people that are Christian now, and people who would be Christian. Um, People of different ideologies and thoughts that come together. Because individually, we can understand God. God reveals himself to us that we can comprehend him. And yet, the paradox is God is not fully comprehensible. And that means we will spend all of eternity getting to know God. And so since we know all of eternity that we will be worshiping with God collectively, what God is doing in the church now and what Paul is praying is that we would worship together and then we would be able to know more of who God is. It's the video that we saw. The the reason what that video is communicating is there is an eclectic community that that when the men and women of God, meaning within the church who have gender identities submitted to the Lord, understanding who they are as a man or a woman in Jesus Christ, um, understanding their gifts and talents, that when we look at the scripture together, there's more of God that we can understand. And we do it collectively. And Paul's praying that we will be able to collectively see this Is all the saints, and we will be able to know what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ Jesus, to the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him, and this is our prayer, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power that is work, at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If we're going to be a church that serves, a church that makes disciples, a church that's generous, a church that begins to embody and reflect the uniqueness around us, it will always be in response to Jesus, and it's only going to come as we pray towards that, that he himself can do abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power by his spirit that's already at work within us. So would you join join with me? Bow your heads and let's pray.